Hi everyone. Great to see you. Um, my name's Josh, if I haven't met you before. Um, a warm welcome to those visiting, um, those online as well. Um, it's great to gather here to worship this morning. Uh, let me lead us in prayer, and then we're going to dive right in. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord God, we thank you that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from you. Speak to us afresh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was a student at the University of Canterbury, I would walk through campus from the social space and um, the kind of bar where the floor was always sticky, um, down a sloping path to the lecture theatres. And just before you got there, there was a stream and there was a little kind of narrow bridge. And more than once at this bridge, I encountered some strategically placed students. At this bottleneck, a handful of clean-cut young people with big grins were standing at the edge of the bridge with pamphlets in their hands. They were evangelists, desperately seeking to avoid um, eye contact, <laughs> looking at my watch and lengthening my stride, I would seek to get past them, you know, giving off the impression I was running terribly late. And I remember the sense both of guilt and embarrassment I felt in that moment. Embarrassment because I could see how many people were agitated by these guys at the bridge. And they were part of the wider Christian community to which I belonged. Uh, I knew that these were folks from uh, a local church, they were evangelists in the community, and they were doing something that I was afraid to do. And so, as well as feeling slightly embarrassed, I also felt guilty that I wasn't able to do that kind of thing. Guilt and embarrassment. Two words that I've often associated with evangelism. And maybe you have too. Maybe not. Guilt, because I know so often uh, Jesus taught his followers to go out and share the message, to go out and preach the gospel, and to pass it on. And so often I've struggled to figure out how to do that. Embarrassment, because the approach that I saw seemed to put quite a few people off, rather than engage people and, and create genuine dialogue. It seemed sneaky to me that these guys were at the edge of the bridge. You know, it's like, you couldn't get past. It was kind of uh, cringy to me. But don't get me wrong, I still uh, think it's an important work that these people are doing. I've got friends who engage in this work regularly. They currently get out in the street and they do this stuff, and I admire them for it. I've had a go at it a few times, and I found it genuinely hard. Um, but when I look back and I reflect on that bridge at university, I realize now that it provoked for me one of the biggest questions of my life. It provoked in me even a wrestling with a vocation and with a calling. The question is, how will people know just how good and true and beautiful the good news of Jesus is? How will they know? And the vocational wrestling for me has been around my calling as a minister of the gospel. It's even actually led to me doing my PhD, which is essentially trying to think about how Christians share the good news, how we share the gospel. Currently, as a church, we're exploring a series on creativity. And today's sermon's titled Beauty, Goodness, and Truth, Evangelism Through Beauty, The Attractiveness of Christ and Christianity. And that's what I want to explore, because I'm convinced that the Christian message is deeply attractive. I'm convinced it's beautiful, it's good, and it's true. So I'm also actually convinced that all of us are called to be evangelists, 
Don't freak out yet, we'll talk more about it. I'm convinced though that all of us are called to share in and to witness to um, this good news. When we think of evangelism or sharing the gospel, often what we think of is a sharing of ideas. Right, does that make sense? Like we often think of a sharing of ideas. Some of us will have seen gospel pamphlets or short messages explaining Christianity, seeking to kind of communicate the basics. Again, nothing wrong with these. In fact, I want to make it clear, and I really don't want you to, because I really don't want you to hear me saying we shouldn't use our words. I want to make it clear we should use our words uh, when we talk about the gospel. It's important we say stuff about Jesus, who Jesus is, and that we tell the story of the gospel. I just wonder if we need to do more. Is the gospel simply information? Something we can tell somebody, and as long as we're clear in our presentation and they understand it intellectually, they will be convinced. Is it simply information? So I wonder about another question. Could we get artificial intelligence to do it for us? Right? Could we as a church develop an evangelism robot? It could save you all of the awkward conversations and the real human interactions that make it so difficult. Um, this robot's actually real. It's called the Bless You Too robot, and it's at a church in Germany, and it dishes out robotic blessings. So there you go. Um, you can make a pilgrimage. If you need details, just come and talk to me. Um, or you might ask another question. Can ChatGPT make disciples? Genuine question. Can ChatGPT make disciples? My hunch is no. Uh, my hunch is no. And this is really at the heart of, of what I want to say this morning. Jesus asked his disciples to go out and make disciples. Jesus commissioned his disciples with proclaiming the kingdom of God in word and deed and sign. And it's this creative task that Jesus has given the church that's a profoundly human task. It's something that we're given to do. And that's uh, what I want to reflect on today, that it's a lived reality. We're called to be a witness to Jesus with our whole lives, and it goes beyond information. And when we think of evangelism, we might have um, stories like the one I mentioned of evangelism on the street. But there's another story, a story told in Matthew's Gospel that we heard read this morning. And it's the story of a woman at Bethany anointing Jesus with perfume. And it's the story that I want to draw our attention to as we consider what does it mean to be people who bear witness to Jesus? The story of a woman anointing Jesus with perfume at a feast is found in all four Gospels, uh, each with a different emphasis. And here we find in Matthew's account uh, the story told in chapter 26 of his Gospel. And this chapter actually tells the story of the conspiracy to arrest Jesus and to have him killed. At the beginning of the chapter, we read about the religious leaders plotting, and further on, we read about Judas betraying Jesus. And during these dark narratives, there's this beautiful glimpse of light amongst the shadows. The story of a woman who bears witness to who Jesus is, who really gets it, who knows who he is. Matthew paints this picture for us. The guests are gathered for a meal at the house uh, in Bethany, and this woman who's unnamed in this version uh, anoints Jesus' head with a jar of costly perfume. In Mark and John's Gospel, the perfume is named as nard. It all seems strange to us, right? It's not a normal act of hospitality when people come over for a meal. Throw your Calvin Klein at them. Um, 
But sometimes at an ancient Jewish banquet, people's heads would be anointed with just a little bit of oil. That would be something that might happen. However, what this woman does goes far beyond what's expected. She takes this extravagant perfume, this nard, which according to some commentators is worth about a year's wages for an average worker at the time. It's a lot of money. And she breaks open this jar and anoints Jesus with it. I mean, this stuff is so expensive that some commentators think it could have been a family heirloom that was passed on from one generation to to the next. The point is, this is a lavish, costly act of devotion. The perfume itself also has significance in the sense that it's linked with Jesus' burial. Perfumes and oils would commonly be used for this in the ancient world. Jesus mentions this in his interpretation of what's happening. While others are plotting Jesus' death, and and there's a conspiracy going on um, around him, Jesus uh, points out that this woman sees the value and the significance of his death. Here's the anointed one, the Messiah, whose death will break the power of sin and death. So what happens next? Well, we hear that the disciples start behaving like those two guys on the balcony from the Muppets. They grumble and they grouse, they point out the waste, saying to Jesus, this money could have been used for the poor. And in doing so, they completely miss the significance of the moment. They miss who Jesus is. They view this act as wasteful, and their primary lens is utility. All they can think about is the economics. And for them, this act just doesn't compute. It's too excessive, too flamboyant, OTT, it's too much. Are they right? Do they have a point? Jesus pushes back and challenges their view. He says, why do you trouble the woman? She's performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. This is not Jesus being cynical about caring for the poor. Right through Jesus' teaching, there's a massive emphasis on caring for the poor. Um, The biblical scholar Craig Keener, he says this, he says, this woman supplied something for Jesus shortly before his death that no one else can exactly repeat but she provides a model of sacrificial love. Subsequent disciples show that sacrificial love to Jesus now by using all their resources for the work of his kingdom, including serving the poor. Finally, Judas provides an example of those who follow Jesus for what they can get out of him rather than for how they can serve him. And so Jesus challenges the disciples' stinginess, the kind of either-or category that they have created that doesn't need to exist, The woman provides a model of sacrificial love in contrast with their calculating. Jesus points out that this act of worship is significant in this moment. And if we pause to think about it, there is a sense, eh, in which worship has always been extravagant and lavish. Or if you want to see it as the disciples see it in this story, wasteful. If we cast our minds back to the tabernacle and the temple worship in the Old Testament, Think of all of the gold, all of the craftsmanship that went into the carving of wood, the burning of incense, all of the animals that were raised to provide sacrifices, the fancy clothes that the priests wore. There's a sense as you read a book like Leviticus of all the details and the devotion. The people were called to give it their all. And it could be viewed as wasteful if you took the view of the disciples. 
Think of cathedrals, churches all around the world, glorious buildings, years spent planning them, generations building them. I mean, it's incredible when you, when you take a look at the creativity and um, the immense amount of work, stonework, stained glass, all bearing witness to the glory of God. And through a cynical lens, if we want to make it an either or, we could argue this money could all be spent very differently. There's a fact, though, that in reality all celebration can be viewed as wasteful in this sense. And when it comes to birthdays, uh, in my family when I was growing up, we were pretty low-key about the celebrations. Try not to make too much of a big deal. Um, But I remember when Joe and I first got married, and um, I started to learn near enough is not good enough. (laughs) Right? And Joe has um, taught me this wonderful gift of what it means to give and to celebrate and to like, make a big deal of birthdays. Um, think about it. Think about all the time and money we put into, put into cards and candles and gifts and food and decorations, the lot. We go over the top. And in Matthew's gospel, we see this celebration of who Jesus is, this devotion and worship in which this woman gives everything that she's got. She lays out the red carpet for Jesus. And he turns and he says, she's performed a good service for me. Or as the NIV puts it, she's done a beautiful thing to me. A good service, a beautiful thing. And this phrase, beautiful thing, or good service or good work, is the same phrase in Greek that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount when he says this, Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. I think that's an interesting link. Um, And several commentators on this passage think that actually Matthew intends to make this link with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as he talks about this uh, happening, this story of this woman anointing him. This beautiful and good act is an act that illustrates what it looks like to be a light in the world. And I love that connection because for me it shows us this is a story about witnessing to Jesus. This is a story about evangelism. Jesus himself says, truly I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed, in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. So what does this story tell us about bearing witness to Jesus, about evangelism? Well, I think the big thing, the major thing, is this story says to us is that it involves a tangible sign. It involves something uh, that we can see. Jesus tells his disciples, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And so the anointing of Jesus by this woman goes beyond words. It's a lived witness to who Jesus is. Everyone in the room can see it. In fact, I'm sure they could smell it, right? Um, They can't miss what's going on. Why does it matter? It matters because the gospel is not merely information. It's the reality of God bringing about new creation in the midst of the old. Resurrection life amongst death, hope amongst despair. It's a story of God's kingdom breaking in, in Jesus, and a call for us to participate and share in that kingdom. And I think in terms of evangelism, this matters because I think most people today who are either unsure or apathetic about or resistant or even against Christianity are probably not that way purely for intellectual reasons. 
it probably isn't simply a matter of information or having the right information. I think the big question for many people is this. Is Christianity really good news? Is it good news? And for anyone to be convinced of this, I think people actually need to see good and beautiful examples. We have perhaps as Christians obsessed so much about communicating truth that we have at times missed this point. Uh, Gavin Ortland has written a really good book called Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't, The Beauty of Christian Theism. And he says this, a Christian apologist once remarked to me that on university campuses 30 years ago, he was asked more questions about Christianity's truth. Does God exist? Did Jesus rise from the dead, etc.? Today he's asked more questions about Christianity's goodness. Is the church intolerant? Are Christians homophobic, etc.? I think this is broadly representative of our whole culture. Thus, if we commend only the truth of Christianity and neglect the appeal to beauty and goodness, we're actually not hitting the central animating concerns of our culture. It's a really good point, I think. Similarly, the Christian theologian John Stackhouse, he muses on the same topic, and he says, if we neglect beauty in our homes, in our churches, and in the education of our children, we will be cultivating and propagating a deficient religion, the heresy of an unbeautiful Christianity. I love that line. The heresy of an unbeautiful Christianity. To preach and live the whole counsel of God, including the beautiful. This is the best apologetic that we can offer. Together, as the Christian church, we're invited to point to the attractiveness of Christ and Christianity. And let's face it, we do have a big job on our hands because we're invited to counter the many negative perceptions that people have of Christianity. We actually need to take responsibility for the failures and the misrepresentations of our faith that have perpetuated stories that have put people off. And the invitation as we hear the story in Matthew is to take inspiration from this woman who anoints Jesus. Jesus says in doing so, she's done a good work, a beautiful work. This good and beautiful work, I believe, is the creative work that we're all called to share in together. And so our stories, our lives become the canvas on which the beauty of the gospel is painted. Our stories, our lives become the light which illustrates God's goodness. And our stories, our lives, witness to the truth of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Last week at church we heard three stories of creativity. Three incredible stories, three examples of people, people bearing witness to God at work in their everyday life, in their work. I um, mean, if you missed it, I encourage you to check it out online. What if we all saw ourselves as evangelists? Not in the sense of handing out pamphlets at the University Bridge, but in the sense that we follow Christ. And as we follow Christ, we're given this creative task to be a light to show forth the attractiveness of Jesus in the Christian faith. This might look like creating beautiful things that inspire people to see the creativity of God, building and painting, design. It might look like creating spaces that speak of God's goodness, welcoming and warm spaces of hospitality, a meal, a family home. It may look like beauty and goodness expressed in acts of care, such as nursing the sick, tending to gardens, teaching children. The point is that there are many opportunities for us to show forth the beauty and goodness of God 
One example I particularly love is the power of music. I think music has this incredible ability to engage people with God, right? The composer, um, Johann Sebastian Bach, he wrote some of the most stirring and beautiful music ever written, arguably, I think so. Um, He was also a devout follower of Jesus. He once said this, he said, at a reverent performance of music, God is always at hand with his gracious presence. And it turns out he's not the only one to experience this. In Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, he talks about the iPod and Steve Jobs' love for music. And one of his favorites was the classical musician Yo-Yo Ma. And he invited Ma to play at his wedding, but he couldn't make it, he was somewhere else. Um, And so later on, he came to his house to play for him and his wife. And as he played uh, Bach in the living room, Steve Jobs wept and he said, you playing is the best argument that I've ever heard for the existence of God. Beauty speaks to us. I think of the psalmist's invitation to taste and see that the Lord is good. I think our role together as a church, as evangelists, is to curate a banquet where people can come and taste and see. And to stick with that metaphor, we all bring a plate to the table. We all contribute creatively with our unique gifts. St. Augustine, or Augustine, that wild and wonderful bishop and theologian from North Africa after whom we're named and whose saint's day is tomorrow, just if you want to celebrate. Um, He's also the patron saint of beer, so you can raise a glass to St. Augustine. Um, Monday the 28th, yep. Uh, Anyway, he has lots of insight on this notion of living a good and beautiful life. He was pastoring and leading in a time of conflict. Christianity had grown strongly amongst the Roman Empire in, in the preceding century to his ministry. And yet now he was finding himself leading in a time where the Roman Empire itself was on the brink of disaster, cultural decline and war and the crumbling of Roman dominance and power. And plenty of people were blaming the Christians for this. Plenty of people were convinced that the Christians were at fault here, Um, that actually Christianity, in fact, was bad news. And so St. Augustine is speaking into this context. One day he gets up and he's preaching to his congregation and he says this, I've already said to you yesterday, (laughs) what a great opening line, hint, 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 a little bit of frustration here. Uh, I've already said to you yesterday, brothers and sisters, and I say it again now, and I'm always begging you to win over those who haven't yet believed by leading good lives. Otherwise, you too, I fear, will have believed to no purpose. I beseech you all in the same way as you take pleasure in the word of God, so to express that pleasure in the lives you lead. Let God's word please you, not only in your ears, but in your hearts too. Not only in your hearts, but also in your lives, so that you, might, you may be God's household, acceptable in his eyes and fit for every good work. I haven't the slightest doubt, brothers and sisters, that if you all live in a manner worthy of God, the time will very soon come when none of those who have not yet believed will remain in un belief. Augustine reminds his congregation that they share together this task of evangelism. It involves words, that's really important, but it also involves them leading such lives 
that they're an example that is so beautiful and good and true that people are drawn to Jesus Christ. And I think we carry this responsibility too. Where does this creative work begin? It begins with the hearts of the congregation. First of all, seeing the goodness, truth, and beauty of Christ for themselves. And as we gather for worship this morning, that's the invitation. We're invited to inhabit the posture of the woman at the banquet who broke open that jar of crazy expensive perfume because she knew that Jesus was worthy of all of her devotion, all of her love, all that she had. That's the invitation for us as we gather to worship. Um, In a moment, we're going to have communion. And as we gather around the table, we remember that this is our family table, but it's not just for us. And I think that's so important. This is not just a table for us. We're always invited to call others to the table, to put out an invitation, to set a plate, to pull up a seat and say, come and eat with us. And as we eat and drink together, uh, my invitation for us this morning is that we could call to mind those people we know who we long to see sit at the table to eat and drink with Jesus. Let us call them to mind. Let us pray for them as we gather at the table ourselves. As we receive the bread and wine, let's hold them in our hearts. And as we receive, may the Holy Spirit anoint us afresh that our lives will be full of beautiful and good works that bring glory to God. Let's stand together. And I'm going to lead us in a prayer as we gather around the table.